0: Welcome to Near East PolicyCast, episode 56 for March 22, 2019. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute.
1: So there's perception of U.S. withdrawal, there's, you know, economic opportunity potentially in the Red Sea in the future, and there's security risks that weren't there before. All of these things mean eyes are trained on the Red Sea.
0: That was Elena Delosier, a research fellow in the Bernstein Program on Gulf and Energy Policy at the Washington Institute. As Elena explains this week, Saudi Arabia and the other Arab states of the Persian Gulf region increasingly perceive that U.S. interests in and commitment to their region is declining, even as Russian and Chinese military and economic activity in the Middle East is growing. As a result, the Gulf states are looking to their West, to the Red Sea, to bolster their own long-term commercial and security interests. What you need to know about the new Red Sea competition after this.
1: This is Gaith al omri Senior Fellow at the Erwin Levy Family Program on the U.S.-Israel Strategic Relationship, at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and prompting the policies
0: that secure them.
1: Find all our research and analysis at washingtoninstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute.
0: I'm speaking today with Elena Delosier, a research fellow in the Bernstein Program on Gulf and Energy Policy at the Washington Institute. Elena has spent years in the Middle East as a political analyst, a veteran of the NYPD's Counterterrorism Bureau, she has taught graduate courses on nuclear proliferation, Gulf politics, and counterterrorism at NYU and at Khalifa University in Abu Dhabi. Elena, welcome to Near East Policycast.
1: Thanks so much.
0: Many Americans think of the Middle East as a vague territory that runs from Pakistan or Iran in Central Asia through Iraq to the Levant, up to Turkey, west across Egypt into North Africa. And also Saudi Arabia is in there somewhere. You've focused much of your career on the Persian Gulf states, and lately you've studied and written in depth about the Red Sea region and the Horn of Africa. Can you offer a bit of a primer on the Arabian Peninsula and its periphery?
1: When most people think of the Arabian Peninsula... I think they think of Saudi Arabia first. It's that the the big country right in the middle that's juts into the into the water. I think the important piece to think about with Saudi, so if you if you can picture it in your mind, it's got waterways on on three sides, give or take. So it's got the uh, it's got the, the Arabian or Persian Gulf on its eastern flank. It's got the Red Sea on its western flank. And then in the south, it's got Yemen and Oman. But south of those, it's got the huge waterway out into the, the world markets. And so Saudi Arabia is an interesting case because they're the place where, that has all of the oil in the world. But for them to get oil out to world markets, they rely on very specific trade routes that are contingent upon other countries. So if we just sort of go around the Arabian Peninsula, if we think about the eastern side of Saudi Arabia, where you have what we normally call the Persian Gulf, but they like to call the Arabian mm-hmm. Gulf, um, uh, you've got all the small states. Mm-hmm. You've got Qatar and Kuwait and Bahrain. And then the UAE serves as a little jutting out point mm-hmm. across from which there's Iran. And this is this little point that juts out and creates a tiny little waterway is called the Strait of Hormuz. Mm-hmm. And that's always been a security concern because the Gulf states are worried about Iran cutting off the Strait of Hormuz and what if their oil can't go through it and all of that. And so because of those security concerns, a number of states like the UAE have, have attempted to put ports on the outside to make sure the ports are not in the Gulf but on the outside, outside. On, the, on the sort of waterways that lead to the rest of the world. And for Saudi Arabia, which doesn't have that option, just geographically they don't have that option – they have made sure that they have a pipeline that takes their oil to the other side of the country just in case. And And that's the Red Sea. That's the Red Sea, exactly. And so on the Red Sea side, uh, they can either go north up through the Suez Canal to European clients, or they their oil can go south uh through what we call the Bab al which in English means gate of tears <laughs> um so the oil can travel south through this Bab al another narrow strait similar to the strait of Hormuz um and when it, it, it from that direction it can go to asian markets uh and so and then at the bottom of of um the arabian peninsula of course there's yemen and oman uh and and that's the open seas. They're they're connected to the open seas out to, to the rest of the world, and so that gives you kind of a very general sense of the geography and some of the geographic concerns that have shaped trade not only recently but for <laughs> you know eons. Uh, th- these sort of uh, these sort of um, uh, areas where there are choke points, essentially major trade choke points in these in this in this particular region.
0: And south and east of the bottom of the Red Sea, we have uh, Djibouti, Eritrea, Somalia, and inland, there's Ethiopia. How do those countries on the horn of Africa relate to the uh, Arabian Peninsula states, the Gulf states, thoughts about their own, their own strategic near environment?
1: Uh yeah so so East Africa is a critical part of this whole story so you're right as you make your way up the Red Sea you've got uh, Somalia at the the At the bottom, as you work your way up, you've got Eritrea and Djibouti, which are both small countries. Sudan is a has a major part of the uh, the waterway, Uh, and then Egypt above that. And so, when most of us think about the Red Sea, we think of Israel. We think of Saudi has a huge coast, and we think of Egypt. Uh, You know, but there's also these other East African states that uh, that exist along that coastline and are increasingly going to become important for world trade. You know, emerging markets in the world are are coming up and you know all of that. And so for them, the Red Sea has always been a critical uh, passageway. Ethiopia is an interesting case because they're landlocked. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so their exit point is through through Eritrea. But their exit point is is through another country, and so in the same way, you know, any time a country is contingent upon another country for access to the water, this really matters because it's access to world markets, mm-hmm. uh, and that's a really for any country that's kind of a critical, um, you know, issue that they think about. That's that's geographically bound.
0: Right. As the United States has drawn down its involvement in the Middle East in recent years. What has been the effect on our relations with the Gulf states?
1: As the U.S. is increasingly uh, withdrawing from the region, and I should point out that uh, you know, we think of with, we think of the recent examples with Syria, for example, that the Trump administration has called for troops to withdraw from Syria, and there's also talk of potentially uh, coming out of Afghanistan. And um, uh, Iraq was in the news, you know, a few weeks ago with regard to that, and uh, and the Yemen has been something that keeps hitting the headlines in terms of what is the U.S. involvement in Yemen. Uh, but aside from these recent examples, there's been a real psychological withdrawal, I would say, uh, from from the region over the last, not just the Trump administration, but also the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. So this sort of uh, reaction to the Iraq war and all of that. And the Gulf states have seen this coming for a long time. I mean, when I moved there in 2011 uh, to the UAE, they were, you know, Gulf officials were already talking about and worried about this sort of perceived U.S. withdrawal, Mm -hmm. uh, whether it was actually happening in reality or not. I mean, I think we need to keep in mind we're still in Djibouti. We've got a base in culture. Like, we're not totally out, but there was this sort of perceived psychological withdrawal that is now being backed up with physical withdrawals. And so the Gulf states in reaction to that have thought, okay, now we need to protect ourselves a little bit more. Uh, And so, that's not only protecting the eastern flank with the Strait of Hormuz that I mentioned previously, which they already have thought about quite a bit, but now also thinking about protecting that sort of western flank, especially given the security risks in Yemen that weren't there previously, and and um, those sorts of things. So, so I think the impact of the U.S. withdrawal on our relationship with the Gulf states in the in the immediate term is this idea that the, the kind of a shifting of of responsibility, at least psychologically,
0: right the the global uh, trade route uh, through the bab el through the red sea through the strait uh, through uh, the suez canal what does that trade route mean for the countries of the arabian peninsula
1: yeah so this is this is a, a such a critical point um, even if not now in 10 years from now this will be this question will become even more important a year from now and 5 years from now and 10 years from now uh, the Red Sea has always been a critical point of trade because it avoids, if you're going from Asia to Europe, it's the, it's the shortcut. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to go around the tip of Africa at the bottom. Uh, it cuts off a significant amount of time and expense and, and that sort of thing. Uh, so it's always been critical. But as, uh, you know, as China starts to set up this One Belt, One Road economic initiative, What's really interesting, if you were to look at a map of One Belt, One Road, you would see that the, the trade route, and this is a plan that China has uh, to basically create more or less a circle mm-hmm. across land and sea that, uh, that makes trade more efficient in the world. And so along the, the sea route, it goes from Asia up through the Red Sea. What's interesting is that it doesn't stop in Dubai. So Dubai is one of the most critical trade nodes at the moment in the world. The UAE knows that. This is part of their, you know, survival strategy. So they're a small country founded in 1970. And, you know, of course they have oil, but they also need other... Other things, and their economy is driven in large part by the port of Dubai, and they are they have learned the art of logistics basically. And so, for them, if the future of trade is in fact the One Belt One Road, and a lot of people think it is, then they need to get in on that, right. which really goes through the Red Sea. Um, it's not to say all trade is going to leave Dubai. I mean, it's not. Let's. I, I'm not meaning to suggest that, but just. That there is this sort of trend in a certain direction, and mm-hmm. the UAE wants to get in on the trend, and they've got the skill set. They know logistics. They, they know ports. Uh, and so this is, this is a way to sort of make sure that the future of trade includes, includes them. And so what you see is that the UAE is opening or is seeking access, I should say, mm-hmm. <laughs> to a series of locations along the Red Sea for that purpose.
0: On the Horn of Africa, uh, south of the Arabian Peninsula, and particularly south of the Yemeni coast, armed conflict has broken out periodically between Ethiopia and Eritrea for years now. What's going on between those two countries, and how have their conflicts affected the Gulf states?
1: So, in the in the Horn of Africa context, uh, you know they have their own local politics, uh, and there's you're right, Ethiopia and Eritrea have been. Uh, a, a bit of a stalemated conflict for a long time. Uh, Eritrea was blacklisted by the international community, had sanctions, and there's a UN panel on them, and all uh, those those sorts of things. And uh, Ethiopia, the problem with the conflict for Ethiopia is that they are landlocked. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eritrea is on the water so it would be useful for Ethiopia to be friends with Eritrea so they could have access to the water and thus access to world markets and for world markets to have access to them. Mm -hmm. So they've used the port of Djibouti but you know one port might not be enough for Ethiopia's 100 million people. Mm -hmm. I think we sometimes forget how or we don't know how massive the Ethiopian economy is or could be. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so Recently, the UAE has played a role in helping Ethiopia and Eritrea come to peace, and in so at least a tentative uh, or a tenuous peace uh, for the moment. And in so doing, it opens up the opportunity that there could be ports in Eritrea that Ethiopia could access, and then people again could access the Ethiopian economy, which is so large, through those ports. Um, the UAE currently has a military base in Eritrea, not an mm-hmm. actual port. But if they continue to develop a relationship with the Eritreans, they might be able to, you know, this this could this is a potential.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, so so those conflicts on in East Africa and in the Horn of Africa have all of a sudden taken on a importance to the Gulf states in a way that maybe they weren't ten years ago.
0: Also along that trade route from the uh, Indian Ocean north of the Horn of Africa, into the Red Sea, and then into the Mediterranean, we've had now for years a, uh, a conflict in Yemen that's included various Yemeni factions lobbing missiles across borders. Uh, how, has, how has that affected security and economic calculations uh, on the Arabian Peninsula?
1: So within the Red Sea, the, the first threat people would think about or know about from reading the media is piracy. Right. We all remember the pirate attacks of Somalia and all of that. That was the the first. I mean, I I, I don't want to make it sound black and white, but um, that was that was new. Mm-hmm. Right? That was something where people started to look at the Bab el Mandeb that I mentioned before in the Red Sea and think, oh, this is there's actually a security threat here. Um, that didn't didn't quite the the states along that area have oftentimes been weaker states, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that the waterway itself was threatened. So the piracy threat was the first threat. Then you're right that Yemen has now provoked another set of fears uh, based on the, the Houthis, which are the rebel group in Yemen that, that took over the capital and um, you have, have Iranian backing and specifically have been given missiles by Iran. And they've used those missiles to not only, as you mentioned, send them over the border towards Saudi but also to send them into the Red Sea Mm. and there was in fact a a Saudi tanker that was hit by one of the missiles uh, and it was carrying a pretty significant amount of oil at the time it was a real red flag in terms of what threat, you know, because if, if ships cannot safely pass through the Red Sea, this is a huge trade conduit. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of a sudden, insurance rates go up and, you know, not to mention fear goes right. up, you know, but but fear ends up affecting business confidence in all sorts of ways. And so um, Sh- Saudi Arabia even shut down their oil trade through the Red Sea for a, for a temporary period of time. I mean, mm-hmm. this was a massive security threat. Uh, uh, to them. And so do you, not only does the Red Sea represent potentially the future of trade, and thus, you know, getting a series of ports along the Red Sea, whether it's Saudi through their Vision 2030 plan, setting up a whole series of, you know, new economic initiatives along the coast, and uh, the Emiratis, you know, have ports uh, in the, the top of Somalia, the north of Somalia uh, in some autonomous regions, but in the Eritrea example I gave before, so not only the ports, but then also the security risks for another reason that all of a sudden all eyes are on the Red Sea.
0: Right. The United States has seen the the defense of global trade routes as a core national security mission for particularly our Navy. Since depending on how you want to look at it, since the end of uh, the Royal Navy's hegemony of the seas, or at least since World War II. Are the countries of the region less likely to look to uh, Uncle Sam to provide freedom of the seas in that area at this point? And and if so, why? I
1: I don't think that the partnerships with the U.S. are going to evaporate tomorrow. I do think that as the U.S. continues this withdrawal, whether physical or psychological or whatever you want to call it, from the region broadly speaking, and as, as that's more more, more importantly felt in the region, the the states, the regional states will increasingly look to protect themselves, and so. Thus, they will look for ways to increase their capabilities, and the UAE has increased their military capability quite substantially in the last couple of years, uh, the last decade, really. Not only because they've sent their they've sent their special forces to join our special forces in Afghanistan, and they've gotten a significant amount of training from that, but. They also have learned a lot through the conflict in Yemen, Mm -hmm. whether it's how to do amphibious assaults or counterinsurgency or counterterrorism or ground operations or air operations. I mean, they've learned a significant amount of skills in Yemen. And so the states will, if they perceive the U.S. as withdrawing or continue to perceive that, they will continue to ramp up their own capabilities to protect themselves. So if there is then a threat, I mean, I think if there's a threat in the near term, the the policies are the same. I mean, and, and the U.S. also relies on these trade routes. It's not like the U.S. is never going to say this is Saudi's problem and Saudi's problem only. Right. Uh, ever. I mean, it's always going to be part of our problem because we rely on trade routes, too. Um, it's it's why when piracy was an issue in the Red Sea, lots of states came together. It wasn't just the U.S. It was and it wasn't just the regional states. It was, you know, uh, a, a large contingent of countries around the world kind of came in to say, "What can we do to help?" Because this is a this is an issue. World trade's an issue, obviously, for everybody. Um, so I don't think that it it means all of a sudden the U.S. won't be called. Nobody will pick up the phone and call the U.S. anymore. Right. But I do think you start to see a trend where people kind of take care of their own if they feel as though. Maybe their buddy isn't as willing to be as involved in the region.
0: So, in the face of regional perceptions of U.S. withdrawal, uh, even if it's uh, a perception of uh, a decline in American attention and uh, uh, diplomatic commitment, uh, even if we still have, uh, uh, you know, our bases in operation. What should Washington do to reassure our partners in the region that we do have their back and that we do still value the maintenance of global trade routes?
1: I think there's a couple of answers here. One is that we, as the Red Sea increasingly becomes important, because as there's a perception that the U.S. is withdrawing and the Gulf states, you know, and as there are security risks, so there's perception of U.S. withdrawal, there's you know, economic opportunity potentially in the Red Sea in the future, and there's security risks that weren't there before. All of these things mean eyes are trained on the Red Sea. So if that's the case, the U.S. needs to do a couple of things. First of all, we need to make sure that our Africa folks and our Near East or Middle East folks are talking to each other. Hmm. So, you know, there's a Diplomats are very familiar with this and, and military folks, but there's basically a seam that runs down the Red Sea mm-hmm. uh, in both the State Department and in the Pentagon, where you've got the Africa desk on one side and you've got the Near East or Middle East desk on the other side. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the military, the, the divide is slightly different as the uh, North Africa is categorized differently, but, uh, but you still have a, a seam down the Red Sea where there's AFRICOM and CENTCOM. Yeah um and so in thinking about if if attention is going to be focused on this area, and the Saudis have recently uh, spearheaded this security collective of most of the red sea Red Sea states, attention is focused on this. The Saudis have also set up a um they have a new uh, uh, person who's focused on the African states uh, and on this these sorts of issues so as other people are p- focusing their attention on this region, we should be too, and we need to do that in two ways. One is to make sure there's cross-communication mm-hmm. uh, between you know, the Africa desk and the, the Near East, uh, and also in the military zone. Uh, but al- also, I think one of the ways to do that is to ensure... So there's always ad hoc communication, right? Right. Like a diplomat in Africa can call a diplomat in Saudi and they can have a conversation. Um, But sometimes prioritization at the higher levels doesn't transfer over. So an issue that might be really huge for the Africa folks Mm -hmm. um, doesn't get onto the top 10 list of the Near East folks. And so something that I recommend, given the, the role... Given the importance of the Red Sea, not only for our Gulf partners, but also for Israel mm-hmm. and also for our North Africa partners and also for Russia and mm-hmm. for China and Turkey is setting up a base in the Red Sea and the the Chinese have both a port and a base there and the French are there and the, you know, every, everybody, uh, I was on a recent trip in um, in East Africa and somebody uh, was saying they made a joke that we have all five vetoes on our doorstep. <laughs> the, the idea being that all the five permanent members of the UN Security Council are all, basically all the big states of the world are paying yeah. attention to us and, and all of a sudden. They're
0: active and present.
1: They're active and present. I mean, Djibouti has a number of countries that have bases there. And so as all of this is happening and there's security and economics and China and Russia and Africa and Middle East, I mean, there's a lot of different portfolios that are coming together Mm -hmm. and that's hard to coordinate on an ad hoc, let's hope everybody talks to each other kind of way. So I recommend that the folks who are are in senior positions in government consider putting together an interagency working group or appointing a Red Sea special envoy or something similar so that there is a point person or point committee Mm -hmm. whose job is to think about all of these things and figure out how all these pieces and and on that, say it's a working group or a committee, it should include Africa Desk people and AFRICOM and CENTCOM and China and Russia, like people who deal with all of these different issues so that there can be sort of a, a point that everything goes to to ensure that the U.S. is keeping, keeping on top of what I think will become a, a pretty strategic uh, area going forward.
0: And how will our regional partners respond to the site of a team or an envoy being created for this purpose is that will that create reassurance or confidence
1: i th- we would need to discuss this with our partners in that area of the world first i mean if we i think if we came out with we have a special envoy and we haven't talked to the saudis or the israelis or the egyptians about that that would be a little bit strange mm-hmm. so i think this has to be coordinated in the and that's why i'm being a bit wishy-washy on exactly what form it would take, because I think that's on the basis of a series of conversations with our regional partners in terms of how not only can we be helpful to them in the ways that we think we should be, but also we have to keep in mind our own interests in this region and uh, what those might be. Uh, And so taking all of that into account, what form this exactly takes, I'm not sure, but to your point, for sure, this has to be a conversation with those those folks to figure out what is that person's role and mm-hmm. and who is that person. How how do you find someone that sort of has, you know, their finger on the pulse of all these different pieces uh, and and you know who that person is and sort of what role they're they're encompassing and who they report to. All of that becomes very important for the people in the region to take them seriously and to and to give them the sort of um, information or stature or whatever that they would need to be able to do the job.
0: We've been speaking today with Elena Delosier, a research fellow in the Bernstein Program on Gulf and Energy Policy at the Washington Institute. You can follow Elena on Twitter at Elena Gulf. That's E L A N A G U L F. Elena, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much.
0: This has been Near East Policycast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at Washington Follow us on Twitter at WASH Institute. And subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Please like and rate this podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to it to help others find Near East PolicyCast.